All right, tonight we continue for the Bible study exercise this week. It's, well, not just this week. For a while, it's the book of Amos. Uh, the first week was all the uh, book background method. So um, for those online who completed the book background method, uh, we, we, we worked on that. We did a pretty good job in finishing that up. Then we transitioned into the book survey portion. So remember, we're using what we're called the comprehensive book Bible study method. We're using that method, which is a combination of four different methods. We put those four methods together. The first method is the book background. We did that. Did a number of episodes working through most of those steps. Did pretty good. Focused on some specific things. Then we transitioned into the book survey method. Now, the book survey method, the first thing to do is is a person is to take the book and just read it through. No notes, no commentaries, no nothing. Just read it. Um, and don't, don't do anything else, just, and try to do it in one sitting, okay? You also can read it multiple times, is, is really the goal, but I didn't really emphasize that for this particular teaching of it, because I'm combining it with all the other methods. So, I kind of, I kind of just uh, let people do that on their own, obviously, so people are doing that, and, but the next time you read through the book, you're to read through the book in an observational way. Reading through the book with a notebook and a pencil, making observations. So on Sunday night, we did an hour of observational reading in the book of Amos, and we completed three chapters. Three chapters in our observational readings, okay? And I'm going to trust that Sarah has all of her notes, okay? All right, okay, I hope so. All right, because uh, we will at least just try to remind everyone some of the basic observations we found in Amos chapter 1 through 3. First thing is we realize that Amos chapter 1 gives us some basic facts that you would need to understand the book. We know who the author is, right? Everybody can look at Amos chapter 1 verse 1 if you need to. Amos chapter 1 verse 1. We know who the author is, and how do we know who the author is according to Amos 1.1? The words of Amos. All right, so that gives us uh, something to go on with. We know where he's from, according to Amos 1.1. Tekoa. He lives in Tekoa. Now, why is that interesting? Let me, let me state that. And why is this super, super important? Okay. It's not just interesting. Why is it super important? Tekoa is located in Judah, the southern kingdom. Amos is a prophet to Israel, the northern kingdom. All right, so that's, that's, that's pretty interesting and pretty significant, okay? Tekoa, all right? Next, what else do you get from uh, Amos 1.1? Okay, we have a time frame, right, between two kings that are reigning at that time. So all we have to do is figure out when these two kings are reigning at the same time. And then somewhere in there is Amos is when he is ministering, okay? Does it say who he's, who the recipients of his words are? Concerning Israel. Everybody see that? All right. So the ver- first verse, just observing, you can observe all of that. Now, doing the back- book background, you already know all of this, but this just confirms that what you studied in your background is confirmed right here in the text, just doing your observational reading. Okay, then we started doing, th- we read three chapters in an observational way. And Sarah, what are some of the highlights of our observations in Amos chapters 1, 2, and 3? We saw a pattern. What is this pattern that we saw? 
Okay, let's say in, th- in the first three chapters, and you can correct me if I say it in a way that you don't think is correct. There are three, in three chapters, there's a key phrase. Now, what's interesting, this doesn't appear to be the key phrase throughout the book. It would be great if it was, but... Oh, first two chapters. Okay, first two chapters. And that, key, that phrase is... Go ahead and say it. For three transgressions, for four. For three transgressions, for four. All right? That's used in... Chapter 1 and chapter 2. It's not in chapter 3? Okay. Okay, all right. Yeah, that's right. All right, so chapters 1 through, so 1 and 2, all right? So we we see that phrase. Everybody see that? Now, each time you see that phrase, a pattern emerges after the phrase. You have the phrase, and then what do we find? Uh, A nation is named. A nation is There's something said about their sin. And then judgment is declared. Right? And fire seems to be the common way, the common way, okay? Right? So that, we have a key phrase and kind of a, a, a repeating pattern in chapters 1 and 2. Right? What else did we find very interesting in chapters 1 and 2? What else did we find interesting? That the judgment is pronounced against a bunch of different nations that you, you because the first verse says the words are to whom? Israel, but then it starts with all of these other nations and places, right? Which you're like, wait a minute, I thought this was towards Israel. It seems a little odd and kind of a little weird. And we're not given it, what, what else are we not given? We're not really given much context, right? Hey, for three transgressions, for four, boom, here's the nation, boom, here's a little bit of what they did, boom, here's the judgment. You're like, okay, is this going to happen? When is it going to happen? Like, I'm just kind of left with a little bit of, what, what's, there's a lot of questions that arises from here. All right. Anything else that emerged out of our observational reading? Judah is included. Uh, is, is that the end of two or the end of three? Okay. Oh, end of two. Okay. For some reason, I thought we read three chapters. We only read two chapters then. Okay, but we didn't actually read them. Okay, for some reason, I thought we made it through three chapters. See, I, I was like, we made it through three whole chapters. No, we actually only made it through two. Okay, all right. I was trying to be positive. All right, so we, we only read two. So let me say that again. We did two, two chapters of observational reading, not three chapters, all right? And at the end of two, Judah is mentioned, which is kind of interesting. Then Israel. We finally get to Israel. And when it says Israel, it doesn't kind of follow the exact same pattern, does it? Isn't it kind of broken a little bit? Right. Much longer. Seems to spend more time describing the sin. Yeah. Yes? Right. And uh, there may be, maybe some interesting uh, t- things with the tense of the, of the words there, right? Yeah, and I don't see the fire. So there is kind of a break in pattern there, all right? So, which is somewhat interesting, okay? Remember, when you're making your observations, just so this, this is important, when we're making your, ob- when you're doing your observational reading, you're just making observations. There, and, and I've, I gotta stress this because so many times, especially people online who are doing the studies, they get very, they get very hesitant, right? Almost kind of like, well, what if I get it wrong? You can't get an observation wrong. What's, I guess the only way to get an observation wrong is what? 
you, you either miss the observation or you're making up an observation, okay? Right? Either you're seeing something that's clearly not there, which it should take a couple of seconds for you to realize what you're doing, or you miss one. It's better to name it and not need it than to skip it thinking it's not important, all right? So those are those two, all right? Now, that brings us tonight to chapter 3. And remember, we're doing observational reading. I know this is not typically the way it's done in church, but... That the key, the, the goal with always doing the Bible study methods or any of the Bible study exercise podcasts is to get people actually involved in the process. So, because so much of the scriptures are mishandled, the only way to get people to handle them correctly is not to have people sit in the pew listening to someone who supposedly handled them correctly, but to get the people in the pew to actually handle them. Okay, that's that to me makes a lot of sense, right? Because all of the preaching in the world clearly hasn't given Christians great skill in studying the Bible. I think that we can clearly prove that. All right, so are you ready? Amos chapter 3, observational reading. Now, I will just go ahead and say, we'll probably break some of the rules, right? We're doing observational reading. However, I am standing in front of people, so I I will at times kind of deviate. We'll do a little extra than we're supposed to for the observation, but I'll try to stay as close to the rule as possible. Just remember this. In observational reading, what are you not doing? What's the one thing you're really not to do in observational reading? Well, not interpret, but you're not really start looking everything up. You're not really to start, oh, let's look this up, look this up. Because there was a great temptation to do that in chapters 1 and 2. Because you're like, wait, what, what city is that? Wait, what place is this? Wait, when did this judgment occur? Because I got like 900 questions. Right? But we tried to avoid that as much as possible. Here we go. Chapter 3. Now, please note how, uh, if you again, the key phrase used in chapters 1 and 2, right, See the, remember the key phrase there for three transgressions and for four? When you get to chapter three, now that phrase is repeated with this phrase. Hear this word that the Lord hath spoken against you, O children of Israel. Now, I do, I, I cannot, because we're just doing observational reading, I cannot be dogmatic. But it is fascinating to me just from an observational standpoint that chapters 1 and 2 is all of these different nations. You move to Judah, then he mentions Israel, and then once you get to chapter 3, boom, it's all Israel. So why did he do, go through all these other nations? It's just like, that's, that's kind of an observational question I have. Why, why all that time with the other nations in chapters 1 and 2? Just to lead us right to the doorstep of Israel at the end of 2, to start chapter 3. I don't know if we, there's an answer, but it's one of those observations that I think, i got to figure this out somewhere. Right? Agree? Okay. And, and you can speculate. Like right now, we could, I could go around the room and have everyone speculate on why, but I think it would be a lot of wild speculation. Right? I don't know if it would be educa- even educated speculation. All right. So chapter 3. All right, here we go. All right, that, because that, that's just, this, every time I, I, get, I get ready to read three, I'm like, what, wait, wait, why are all those other nations first? But okay. Hear this word that the Lord hath spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying. All right, kind of interesting. All right. Okay. Yeah, so did, every, did that jump out to everyone? 
All right, why, why did that, okay, I always like hearing why. Why did that jump out to everyone? As soon as I read the whole family, I think everyone at the same time said the whole family. Why, why was that such a significant thing to everyone? But the two tribes are mentioned at the end of chapter 2. All 12 came out of it. That's what I found interesting. The whole family seems to imply that he's upset with everybody. Right? Because in the end of two, he mentioned Judah. Yes? Right? So, I think the whole family here would be, which is kind of interesting. He's mad at everyone, all of Israel, right? I just think that that is interesting. Or to Judah. There, well, and then the rest of the book. <laughs> right. okay. so, so obviously he's very upset with the ten tribes. Okay, but the, put it this way: there's enough blame to go around. Okay, do what? Yeah, everyone he brought up out of Egypt. Yeah, so I think that's interesting. All right, next verse three two. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. That's an interesting verse, isn't it? You only have I known of all the families of the earth. I think that means, well, I'm just making just a quick observation. Now, see, this is where I want to start interpreting each verse. But I think the, I think the idea there is obviously he knows all the nations. But this is known in a special, unique, intimate way. I, of all the families of the earth, I've known you in an intimate way. Right? And now what's going to happen? going to punish you for all your iniquities. All right. Here we go. Verse uh, 3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? Will, will a young lion cry out of his den if he have taken nothing? Nothing. Okay. Can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him? Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at, nothing at all? Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall, the, shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? All right. This is kind of interesting here. Okay. A bunch of questions, but all the questions, we, we would understand these questions to be what? Rhetorical. Yes? All of them are rhetorical. So, this is just, when you're making observations, we see a literary device being utilized here, right? Like we saw kind of a literary device in chapters 1 and 2, which with, was a, a key phrase and a repeated pattern. Right? Now what we have here is the use of rhetorical questions. Why do you ask rhetorical questions? What's the point of using rhetorical questions in your dialogue or in any kind of written material? What's the point? All right, someone said to prove a point. What's it, what, why do you ask rhetorical questions? What do you think? I mean, you've all used them. I mean, you ask your kids rhetorical questions all the time, right? Okay, you're asking the rhetorical question to make the obvious 
more obvious, right? And usually it doesn't work, right? Okay, but you try, right? Okay, you ask the rhetorical question. So just, just from an observational point, and, and again, I, I want to go a little bit beyond, beyond it, but beyond that for, for this purpose. But looking at all of those questions, right? Look at all those questions. What's the first question? All right. The obvious answer is no, you can't. And so the implication is, don't you realize that you and I don't agree? I want you to realize there's disagreement between God and Israel. All right. Second question. Okay. Now, go back. This is just an immediate observation. I believe the book begins with roaring. I could be wrong, or at least I'm thinking. Am I right or am I wrong? The Lord will roar. All right, so the Lord is the one who roars, and that's what's the idea of roaring? A lion roars to, for what purpose? That he's getting ready to attack, or he's getting ready to frighten or intimidate, whatever the case may be. So the obvious question is, Will the Lord, will the lion roar if there is no prey? And the obvious answer is no. So the Lord would not roar unless he has a prey. Who's the prey? Israel, right? Okay, which is kind of a frightening thought, right? It's scary, scary enough to have a lion roaring at you. I don't know if you've ever been at the Abilene Zoo and one of the lions decide to roar, but you can hear it like, like everything just stops. You're like, why? you can be the other side of, the, I mean, I know it's a small zoo, but you can be at the, like the entrance and you hear that lion roar and you're like, whoa. Don't ever, if that thing, if I was ever in the wild and heard that, I would just be dead. That would be the end of me, right? So, but now here's God roaring, right? So there's a second question. Third question. Okay, and the obvious answer is no. And who's getting ready to be taken? Israel. Next question. Okay. The idea, I think a jinn, uh, someone look up the word jinn there, or you can look it up in a different translation. Trap. A trap. Okay, there we go. All right. So in other words, the bird's not going to be taken unless there's a trap. Well, in a sense, who's now laid a trap for whom? For Israel. Okay. Next In other words, if you lay a snare, you're not going to bring that snare up until what? You caught something. Who's getting ready to be caught in the snare? Israel. Okay. Next. Right. Trumpet's about to be blown. They should be scared. They should be afraid. Right. Is that it? Okay. All right, now that's an interesting question. I think the idea of evil is, in other words, some kind of catastrophe, some kind of judgment. Judgment's coming, and who's, who, who is going to be the one who have done it? God's going to be the one who have done it, right? In other words, hey, something bad's getting ready to happen, and God is the one who does it. So all of those questions emphasize what? What do all, if you were to summarize all of those questions, what do they emphasize? Judgment's coming. God's not having, and note, make sure you understand who's doing it. 
It's God. Don't think, don't blame. Oh, it's just natural circumstances. No, this is letting them be known it is God. Right? So I just, those rhetorical questions, just whenever you see rhetorical questions, just know they are emphasizing one main point. So don't miss the main point. Right? So whenever you see a rhetorical question, you determine what the main point is, and then you really make sure you emphasize what that point is. Okay? All right. After the rhetorical questions, what does he do? What, what happens next? Verse 7, right? Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. Now, this is almost doing what here? This speaks somewhat to the authority of Amos, that, hey, the reason there's a prophet here is because God reveals it to the prophets. A prophet has shown up, so what should you probably do? Listen, right? You should probably listen. All right. Next verse. The lion hath roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken. Who can but prophesy? Please note all of that. That takes all of those rhetorical questions and just brings them all together. All of those things that are just said are all brought together. Who's going to be roaring? God. Who sent the prophet? Who should be afraid? Israel. All right. Now, next, publish in the places at Ashdod and in the palaces in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves upon the mountains of Samaria and behold the great tumults in the midst thereof and the oppressed in the midst thereof. For they know not to do right, saith the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Stop right here. What? What do you, do you, is there any major observation you see in verses 8 through 10 that you think is interesting? What do you think he's doing in 8 through 10? You don't have to interpret it, just, just an observation. What do, you, what do you see there? What do you see? Right, well, he mentions a certain nation, which I think is interesting. Right. Now, the Ashdod, I I may not be able to 100% figure that out. I think I know, but I I would have to look that up. Egypt immediately immediately jumps out at me because how did this chapter begin? I I released you from Egypt. Now I'm inviting Egypt to watch. What? Your judgment. That's kind of like a... You know, remember that nation who caused you all kinds of trouble, right? And you got out of them and you're like, well, they got destroyed and don't mess with us. Well, now I'm going to invite them to watch you get destroyed, which is kind of like a really, like a slap in the face almost, right? And then um, if you if you studied the book background, we rem- there was a couple of issues we knew, we know that was going on with Israel. One, and Bethel, the house of God, had become Bethaven, the house of idols. They set up a golden calf in Bethel, right? Which is somewhat interesting. So we know idolatry is a major problem. Another thing going on with Israel is great wealth and prosperity. We saw that in the background, right? If you you did the book background portion. Here, he invites them to watch. And then what does he say about Israel here at the end of this section? No, that, that right, just the section we just read, and, and from like verse 8 to 10. 
He says something interesting in verse 10. They store up violence and robbery in their palaces, almost implying that their wealth has become, was, take, was there, not because of the blessings of God, but through violence and robbery. I, I believe so. For they know not to do right, saith the Lord. I mean, he, obviously this is judgment against Israel. I don't believe it's against uh, Egypt, right? Or does anybody read that differently? No, no, I have a good question. I could question. <laughs> no, that's what. No, it's just funny because uh, Stacy will do the same thing sometimes. Well, wait a minute, that can't be who. And I'm like, nobody cares about those rules, okay? Right? Okay. And I and and clearly, clearly, they don't matter because God doesn't follow them. Okay? No, I'm joking. I'm joking. All right. Now, sometimes they're super important, but sometimes the the text does def- definitely does not follow them. Correct. Would everyone agree with that? All right. Now, verses 11 through 15. All right. Do you see, is there, do you see any kind of pattern in chapter 3? Anything that you just kind of jumps out at you? I mean, we've got the rhetorical questions, right? Yes. Then we kind of have a summary of those rhetorical questions. Are those, some, are those, rhetor, uh, those rhetorical questions kind of explained? Yes. Then what? And then verse uh, kind of eight through ten. It's I, I don't I don't know what we would call verses eight through ten, but it's just kind of interesting the way it's almost an insult in a, in a roundabout way. All right, but now what do we have in verse eleven? What do we have at the beginning of verse eleven? Therefore, so if I'm making if I'm making any observational markings or if I'm writing anything down observationally, I'm going to write I'm going to put therefore and write and just circle that and say verse 11 therefore because that's always a key observation, right? Something that's getting ready to be said is based off what? What came before? So now so what do you look for? Now we observe what the possible connection could be based on what came before. All right, so let's see if we see anything. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, an adversary there shall be even round about the land, and he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. Stop right here. All right. What observation should you see right here? Clear, clearly, they, God is upset with it. Can we agree with this? Chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, demonstrates God is upset with Israel. Can we agree? Something interesting seems to be, verse 11, may be a transition verse. What's the transition in 11? Someone just mentioned it. What? Say it again. If verses 1 through 10 demonstrates God being upset with them, verse 11 seems to introduce what? A third party. A third party. Would we agree? Unless we understand adversary to refer to whom? God, but he's clearly referred to himself in verses 1 through 10. Agreed? So why would he now refer to himself this way? So then, from an observational, I got therefore in verse 11, right? From an observation, guess what else I may write down? Who is the adversary? Agree? Or does does anybody else not think it's significant? 
You, you can argue against my observations if you want. That's, that's perfectly okay. I, I give you that freedom to be wrong. It's a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. Okay. Right? I, I think it's... Okay? And what, what does he say about this adversary? It's going to surround them? Yeah, that, that, that they're going to bring judgment and destruction. Right? But why are they, why are they going to bring the judgment and the destruction? Because God is upset with it. Remember the whole point at the end of that, first, that section in chapter 3 was, who's going to do it? God. So he's letting them know an adversary coming, but therefore that adversary is coming because of God. Don't blame the nation that's coming. Understand that it's God who's bringing it. Does that make sense? All right, verse 12. Okay, thus saith the Lord... As the shepherd taketh out of the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so will the children of Israel be taken out that dwell in Samaria and in the corner of a bed and in Damascus in a couch. That does not sound pleasant, does it? Now, if you're making observation, what are some key observations in verse 12? All right, places are mentioned, Samaria and Damascus. Okay, so we would want to make sure we understand the significance of these. We know that everybody knows the significance of Samaria. Capital of the northern kingdom. Okay, everybody should know that, right? Okay, so that, that makes that one significant. But Damascus, remember Damascus is somewhat odd because remember if you look at a map, like if, you're, if, you, if you start down here with Tekoa, and you go straight up, you're into Jerusalem. If you go straight up, you're in Bethel, right? Damascus is way in the world over here, way up here, right? And so, like, why does Damascus keep getting mentioned? It's kind of interesting, right? So we could figure that out. What else would you say is a key observation in this verse? Is God the shepherd or is God the lion? I don't know. God's always the shepherd. Well, in the pre... Yeah, but he's, the, uh, he's uh, going to be doing this destroying. Can't he be devouring? Can't he be... Right. Oh, good point. Now Bobby's right. Even though God is described as the lion, he's introduced now the adversary, who I guess will now carry out the lion's will, okay? And then it is God the shepherd pulling out the body parts, right? But what I want, now that's, we got to do a lot of interpreting there. But what I want you to do is, what's the key observation? How do we understand this language, right? Very figurative or very literal? I think it's very figurative. Right. It may be describing a literal event, right? But in a very... Uh, Well, right, but I'm saying, right, but I'm saying that uh, we just want to make the observation of the kind of language used because we're going to get to some other language in the book and we're going to be like, wait, okay, what do we do with this? Well, we got to make sure we're consistent with what we do with this. I think we all agree that it's a literal event, 
There's no question there, right? But it's being described in a very picturesque way. The picturesque way does not destroy the literalness of it. It just means not everything has to... Put it this way. That means when we study the literal event, we don't have to go, well, wait a minute. They didn't literally pull body parts... In other words, it's not required to, the literal event is not required to live up to the picturesque language. Now that that can be a good thing or it can be a problematic thing when you get to other passages. The shepherd taking out of the mouth the parts, is that a picture of rescuing? Or is that a picture of stopping the destruction? Or, Or, that's a good question. Or is it just a picture of you're going to be really messed up? Right. In other words, it's not like how that's what I'm saying. When it's picturesque, you got to be careful that you don't require like how like it's picturesque. That means it doesn't have to fit every little thing. So now when it comes to something picture, how do we interpret this picture? Does we okay? we got to figure out who the line is. We've got to figure out who the shepherd is or. Right. Right. What, what I'm trying to say is all of it, every part of it. Like trying to figure out who is who is one step that may, it may actually we're going beyond what we need to. And then trying to figure out, so exactly what is it trying to say? I think what we have to do is take the most obvious meaning. And the most obvious meaning is they're about to be torn into pieces. They're about to be judged. They're going to suffer greatly. Like that's just the basic meaning. If we push it further... If we push it further, then I think sometimes when we look at the actual event, we're like, well, that doesn't quite match up. So I think what we need to do in the observation is go, what is the basic concept that's being put forth here? Great suffering. Agreed? Can we at least agree on that? It's just the most basic observation. Now, how far we take it, I don't know, but I think we can at least draw that. Does that make some kind of sense? Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I agree, but I'm saying at first we just figure out the basic picture. Now, when we go back in the next step doing the verse-by-verse analysis, that's when we'll really dig in and try to figure that out. But even then, we still may be very, we have to be very careful with what we do. All right, verse 13. Hear ye and testify in the house of Jacob, saith the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel, or Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. And I will smite the winter house with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, saith the Lord. Now, if you did the book background, you know why Bethel's being mentioned. Because it becomes the key sanctuary. It becomes the, it becomes the place of, of idolatry. I mean, it becomes the place. It becomes the capital of idolatry for the northern kingdom. So the book background gives us away. Now, that's all of chapter, that's chapter 3, right? Okay, here's what I want you to do. Just skim chapter 3 really quick. Which phrase do you feel is repeated the most in chapter 3? Stacy says it's thus saith the Lord. All right, everyone start in verse 1. And count how many times thus saith the Lord is used. Just look for thus saith the Lord. Just, just look for that right now. 
Thus saith the Lord. How many times is it used? All right. All right. Well, let's let's count the thus saith the Lord first. Thus saith the Lord is used how many times? Bobby says twice. Okay. So, thus saith the Lord is used twice. All right. Uh, could go to the next phrase someone pointed out or next statement. Saith the Lord. Three, four, four, and that, and what, what's the phrase? Uh, five. five. Uh, the Lord hath spoken. Okay, so about five times. Okay, the Lord hath spoken. Okay, count how many times the word here is mentioned in chapter uh, three. Just the word here. I don't care if it's used, how it's used, and, and what phrase. Here. Here. Just twice? Okay, I thought it was used more. All right. So here is only used twice. So we will say that the most repeated phrase is the Lord hath spoken or saith the Lord. Okay. Okay. But, right. But it's used a lot of different ways there. But the, uh, the Lord hath spoken or thus saith the Lord. That is repeated frequently which emphasizes that God is speaking in this prophecy. So I guess we could put it that way. All right, does that make sense? Or say ye. So in other words, there, there are multiple ways of emphasizing God is doing the speaking in chapter 3. Can we agree with that phrase? All right. And you could write down, like in, if you want to make your notes somewhat detailed, you could write down each verse and each time the phrase is used. All right. Everybody got that? All right, any other observations about chapter 3? Okay, say it, the Lord is used a lot. Okay, all right. Any other observations about chapter 3? Yes, no? Go on once, go on twice. Come on, here's your opportunity. Any other observation that you think is significant? Even if you don't think it's significant, anything just jumps out at you that we, you don't think we've covered or looked at or discussed. All right, so let's do this. Chapters one and two, I think we clearly can refer to that as the judgment on the nations. Chapter three is judgment against Israel. I think we can clearly agree on that, yes. All right, and that... uh, well, we, we could probably try to do a little bit more organizing, but we'll just go with that. All right, now what happens in chapter 4? All right, how does chapter 4 begin? 
hear this word, ye kine. Stop right here. What? Kine is cattle. Cattle. All right? If you look up kine uh, and say the Bible dictionary, it will tell you to look up cattle. If you look up cattle, it will say go to animals of the Bible. And you go to animals of the Bible and find cattle, then it will mention kine and all the different different kinds of cattle that could be involved here. So, now, this is immediately odd, right? Chapter 3, how does it begin? Hear ye... Okay, we clearly know who he's referring to there. But here, chapter 4 begins with, Hear ye cattle. Now, immediately, what's a pretty good, just basic... Now, you may want to write down, in chapter 4, God is speaking to cattle... Right? Because that's a, that's, a, that's a clear observation that you should have, but I think we immediately think clearly he's not talking to cattle. Right? So we have to look for... But I think immediately, if I'm writing down my observations, that's going to jump out at me. That's going to jump out at me clearly. So let's, let's look this up and see. Well, do we get any information about this cattle? Bashan, that are in the mountains of Samaria... Now, immediately, Samaria, we know why that's significant, right? Capital of the north. He's going to the northern kingdom. Okay, so, so we're good. He's thrown in Bethel. Now, he, he's, he's got Samaria. Did you have something? She's doing observational reading by looking at notes. and oh, The people who don't follow the Bible study methods. All right, just, I mean, you become Pope and think you can just do whatever you want, okay? All right, we're going to have to have the meeting of a college of cardinals and revoke her Pope-ness, okay, right? <laughs> okay. Okay, all right, I'm so... Okay, well, see, someone follows the rules. Someone follows the rules, and okay, and the older women are bad examples to the younger. So, all right, no, all right, here we go. Oh, oh, wow! Look at that. Justify one's rebe- justify one's rebellion by pointing to one's own spirituality. <laughs> Okay, all right, so here we go. Hear the word, ye cattle of Bashan, that are in the mountains of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, bring and let us drink. All right, now I think we can all agree that doesn't sound like cattle. Agreed? Now, what, so what question would we have? What would be an observational question here? We can't pursue it, but we can at least ask it. Who is the cattle? And why is he calling them cows? Right? Well, I understand that, but I'm saying all we, all we can focus on here is the... So, go ahead. Yeah, there's, there's, again, more picturesque, figurative language. And, now, and, and remember, what we, that just, you've got to please remember this with the picturesque, figurative language. All we have to worry about is figuring out the main point. The more you try to push it 
I guarantee you it will break down. And you're going to be like, well, wait a minute. That, and then you're going to start trying to make this represent this and this. Oh, it's turning into destruction. So what would be the main point of this verse? Just from an observational standpoint. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm just, I'm going to say it in kind of a funny way. The cows are obviously not good. They're not nice. Right? They're not nice. What, what, what is interesting is the cows have masters. So who are, see how, you see how you can push this? You start asking, well, who are the cows and who are their masters? And why is the cow telling the master to bring and let us drink? Like, what is going on here? There's a lot here, all right? Verse 2. The Lord God hath sworn by his holiness that, lo, the day shall come upon you that he will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. Now that's interesting. Hooks and fish hooks to bring out the cattle? Like what? Like what? Is, there, is that, is the fish hooks connected with cattle and stuff? Like what? Or is he just changing the imagery completely? Like he starts with cattle and now he's talking about like fish hooks. Right? And then, yeah, in the next verse, and you shall go out at the breaches, every cow at that which is before her, and you shall cast them into the palace, saith the Lord. Verse 4, come to Bethel and transgress at Gilgal. Multiply transgression and bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years. Now, I, I just, I have to throw something out just from an observational standpoint. If you did the book background, you know what's there at Bethel. Everybody knows what's at Bethel? A golden calf. A golden calf. Cattle. I'm not saying that, like, just my observation is going to be like, Bethel, golden calf, cows. And where does he tell them to go? And what does he tell them to do? Multiply your transgressions. It's almost like you want to continue to sin? Well, then go sin. I I just think that's interesting. All right. Agreed or? All right. Next verse. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven and proclaim and publish the free offerings. For this liketh you, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord God. That's an interesting thing there in five. But here's what's interesting. Um, Or do you believe that the end of verse five identifies who the cows are? Now, some argue that this is referring to the women of Samaria and not to all of Israel. I don't know if I agree with that. Because they mention her, and I guess they're assuming that that, that, that cattle is, re- is referring to cows and not bulls, okay? I don't know. I, see, you see, here's the problem. When you start trying to push the picturesque language, you've got to try to make everything fit. And I don't know if we're, if, if we're called to make everything fit. I know this, that... To me, what jumps out at me is that Bethel is mentioned with cows, and that fits to me with the golden calf 
That to me fits. I don't know how far I'm going to push it, but it seems at the end to refer to them all as the children of Israel, which would refer to both men and women. Agreed? All right. Next verse. What, what's weird? Oh, the next verse is weird. Okay. All right. Well, I think five is kind of weird. I think we, uh, five is a little like, and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven and proclaim and publish the free offerings for this liketh you. Like, what? I don't know. Okay. Well, well, hang on before we go any further. Sarah just asked a very good observational question. Is that sarcasm? Five. Don't look at your notes! Okay. Right. But just, but, right. But just write, just at least for your observation, just write down possible sarcasm, right? Because we've got to identify all the literary devices. We've already seen rhetorical questions, right? We've seen the use of picturesque language, agreed, and now possibly the use of sarcasm. All of those require certain interpretive skills, right? The rhetorical questions, we got to just figure out what's the main point. The picturesque language, we got to be careful we don't push it too far to try to make everything fit. And with sarcasm, we definitely got to we got to we got to interpret sarcasm as sarcasm or you'll end up really confused, right? Okay. Now the next verse. And I also have given you cleanness of teeth and all your cities, and want of bread, and all your places, yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Okay, I've given you hunger of teeth, and want of bread. All right, so, but once again, what do we have? Some kind of a, picturesque language, what seems to be going. Right. Yeah, I think that's what I think that's what's referred to. So this is me- meaning God has done some things to them, but they've yet to listen. Okay, agreed. Verse seven, and also I've withholden the rain from you. That's much more easier to understand, right? And there were yet three months to the harvest, and I caused it to rain upon one city and caused it not to rain upon another city. Uh, one piece was rained upon, and the, and the piece whereupon it rained not withered. So two or three cities wandered unto one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Now, what's kind of interesting here seems to be what? What, what, what do you think is happening here? Well, well, how would you understand? Just, we don't have to interpret everything. Just what's the basic observation you see here? Does it feel to you that he's like, hey, I did these like small punishments and you wouldn't listen. Right? But I put rain somewhere else. Right? I, I, so you had to go walk to get it, but at least it was there. Right? I made you a little hungry. So in other words, I did these smaller things. Do you feel that that's kind of what he's doing here? Yes, it, it feels to me like when we threw our kids out when they were little. Right. Like, y'all keep it up. Keep right on doing that. And then I try to warn you 
Right. Like showing up at someone's residence and saying, I think you've got classified materials. You need to give them back. And you don't listen. And then you come back and say, and you don't listen. And then finally you have to raid the place and take. Okay. All right. Just using the news. Just using the news. Okay. But it's the same concept, right? It's the same concept that like, we try, I tried this and I tried this and you would not return. What does he say next? I've smitten you with, with blasting and mildew. When your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased, uh, the palm worm devoured them, yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I caused you some issues. Th- this is interesting from an observational point. I think this is interesting from an observational point. I don't want to get too interpretive. Remember, it was at the end of chapter... So we're in chapter 4, right? Was at the end of chapter 3... There's somewhere in chapter 3 where he reminds them, hey, no, make sure you know that it's me, that it's God doing this, right? What, what, what verse is that where he, he emphasizes, make sure you know it's me doing this? What verse was that? Is, is it right after the rhetorical questions? No, I'll find it real quick. I'll find it real quick. Because he he emphasizes, make sure you know it's me who's doing this. All right? Um, Yeah, the, uh, the lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Um... I thought there was another place as well where he really emphasizes, make sure you know that I'm the one doing this. I'm the one doing this. Uh, we, we talked about it. Uh, let me see here. Let me look here. Make sure. There we, remember we spent a lot of time referring to it and discussing it? Um, yeah, okay, shall a trumpet be blown and in a city and the Lord hath not... Okay. There was still something else. Remember we talked about it for like 10, 15 minutes about he's making sure they know God did it. He made, made sure he knows God. I don't remember which... Ver- I didn't, I don't have, you know, obviously we're working through this in real time. Yeah, the Lord said it, the Lord said it. But, well, we mentioned it there, but earlier on in it, I'll have to go back and listen to the recording. But that we made a major, I made a major deal that he's making sure they know he's the one who did it. Don't, don't think it's just the adversary that's coming. I'm the one who did it. Remember, where does he mention the adversary? Remember the key verse where it changes over? Verse 11. Uh, Thus saith the Lord God, an adversary. And remember I said that's a major transition right there. And so he's made sure in the previous verses, I think if you take everything from chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, he's emphasizing that it's him, that it's God. God's the one doing it. God's the one doing it. God's the one doing it. But he's going to use an adversary, right? Yeah, I think we emphasized it in verse 1 through 10 is where we really emphasize because I made the big I made the big point that the transition happens in 11, right? He's emphasized that he's involved. Now, just stay with me. Here's the reason I want you to see this, all right? He's emphasized, I'm the one doing it, I'm the one doing it, but an adversary is coming, right? An adversary is coming. Now, once that adversary gets there, what's a tendency? 
the tendency is to focus on the adversary and forget God and just think something bad is happening, right? But he's made it very clear that it's him. Now he's reminding them of those things that he did do to them, right? Go back to all the things that he did to them. Let's go back to it really quick. We're out, we're out of time, but we're, we're at least let's get this down, right? We're in chapter four, right? Okay, which verse starts with the things I've done to you? Six. Now, he emphasizes that he's the one doing them, right? I. All right, so he emphasizes he's the one doing them. What's the first thing he does? Hunger. I've given you hunger, but you wouldn't return to me. Now, let's be honest. From an observational standpoint, right? Why do you think they didn't return to him? Well, we could say their sin. We could say a lot of that. But is it not possible that they did not perceive that that hunger had anything to do with God? And just the natural circumstances of life? Right? What's the second thing? The withholding of rain, but it was raining somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean would you even rec- recognize that there was a problem? I mean, it's raining over there. We can go get rain. Right? Next thing. Okay? With the worm, right? So there's a worm, okay, that damages part of the things they're growing, okay? That's not the most significant thing in the world. Again, would you even, like, I wonder, I wonder if God's trying to tell us something. I don't know if they would have even recognized it. Yes? Okay. Is there another one? Okay, now, now clearly now it's getting serious, okay? All right, now, now pestilence. You think that now that maybe they're like, okay, maybe we, need to, we, maybe we need to have a meeting, okay? Pestilence, and then how does he describe it? After the manner of Egypt, and uh, your young man have I slain with the sword, and I've taken away your horses, and I've made the stink of your camps to come up unto your nostrils. Ye have not yet returned unto me, saith the Lord. Clearly something really bad started happening. And they still did not return. Next verse. Okay, now, now it's really getting serious. I've overthrown some of you as, as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning, yet you have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Then verse 12. Therefore, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. For lo, he that formeth the mountains and createth the wind and declareth unto man what he, what is his thought that maketh the morning darkness and treadeth upon the high places of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts is his name. Once again, he's emphasizing who's doing it. So I'm going to, I'm going to argue that three, one through 10 emphasizes God is the one involved. However, an adversary is going to be used. Correct? Chapter 4 starts with the cattle situation. I don't know what in the world's going on with cows, right? But then, starting in verse 6 to 11, is God's chastening, God offering discipline, but they would not listen. They would not heed the discipline. And then 12 through 13, once again, emphasizes what? God is the one doing so, all right, now we're going to have to end. All right, any key observations from that chapter? You have not returned unto me as repeated five times. Very good, that's a good observation. 
Right? You have not returned unto me. You have not returned unto me. You have not returned unto me. It, it's the, the cow part at the beginning is a little odd to me. Right? I don't quite get if I completely understand what's going on there. I got some ideas. But this last part is fascinating to me because it demonstrates that you, that, like this brings up lots of theological issues here, right? Because God is bringing chastening. I guess this is what it demonstrates. Look, this would be a theological mystery here to figure out. That you could be chastened by God and not even realize that you are being chastened by God. However, do you see the possible problems with that? Then anytime something goes wrong, you immediately perceive that you're being chastened by God. But Job would demonstrate that that's not always the case. So how are you supposed to know? Yeah, yeah. I know that. That, that is that. Right. In other words, all these other things happened. You didn't realize it was me. Now you're going to know that it's me. You're going to meet me. Yeah, the, the one who created. You're going to meet the creator. Like, like, I've tried all of these other things and you wouldn't listen. But it does raise lots of questions about God's chastening, right? Because I think immediately we realize, like on one hand, some people think that anytime something bad, I must, be, I must have done something wrong. Well, it doesn't always mean that because Job wasn't doing anything wrong. However, it doesn't mean that it's not. So all we can ever do with whatever we are facing is to use the opportunity to once again acknowledge whatever sin we're doing, confess it, and just continue to try to follow God. I mean, that's all you can really do. I mean, there... What we're, right, whether it's good or whether it's bad, right? Because I know this, on a good day or a bad day, I still have sins to confess and I still need to turn to God, right? So I think that's the, the best way from it. All right, any other observations? I know we didn't get near as far. Oh, right, so over and so it's clearly emphasizing God is the one speaking. Okay, right, 11 times. So this is emphasizing God is doing the speaking. God is the cause for the judgment, right? He's the one causing it. God was the one who brought chastening to them. Think about this. God is the one doing everything, and God has been the one who's been sinned against and the one who has been ignored. But we end tonight with God is telling them, I'm not going to be ignored anymore, (laughs) okay? I'm not going to be ignored anymore anymore all right the first two chapters have a clear structure and it's nice and neat these there's a lot of this that gets a little difficult Right. Oh yeah. Oh that. That yeah. Where it. Now you're gonna really get. You're really gonna get judgment. Yeah, yeah. He hasn't been super specific about their sin yet. He hasn't been super specific, but there are clearly some indications of some things. There's clearly some indications of some things. All right. We'll have to. St- I, I don't want to stop, but we have to stop. All right. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening.
uh, a very complicated read in some ways, but obviously extremely interesting. But we can get so caught up in what's interesting that we miss maybe some clear points here that you bring chastening, and sometimes we ignore that chastening. Help us at least consider the role of chastening in our lives and how to consider it and respond to it properly. And we ask this in Jesus' name. God's people said.